So I'm ready to go tonight. Are you? Open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. Now our subject is one that would take a series of messages and multiple weeks to cover, but we're going to hit some high points here tonight. If we were going to fully address the issue, and our topic tonight is the war of Ezekiel, and I think most of us who follow prophecy are aware that it is one of the main topics of discussion uh, for those who are studying and students of prophecy, and for good reason. And that is because the events recorded in this series of uh, chapters is happening and seem to be lining up right before our eyes. Now, a couple of things we've been talking about at our church concerning prophecy and the interpretation of prophecy. We just finished last Wednesday a study of the book of Daniel. And a couple of things I want you to be aware of as we move forward tonight concerning any study of prophecy, including that which we'll look at tonight, something written over 2,500 years ago. Now, I want to give you two things, and I'd like you to jot them down because they'll be helpful for you whenever you approach prophecy and someone's interpretation of it today. Now, what I'm going to say to you is based on what Daniel said or was told at the end of the four visions he received recorded in the book of Daniel. Daniel was told in 12.4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until when? Until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about what the knowledge increasing actually means, but one thing it definitely means is knowledge of the four visions of Daniel would increase in the last days. Now, what Daniel was told is that which was given to him that may not have been clear to him is going to be very clear to the generation that watches the events unfold. So, when considering prophecy, and there are multiple interpretations, sometimes as many as there are commentators, and many of them disagree with one another, so remember these two things that are rooted and based in Daniel 12, 4. And the first is this. A majority opinion does not assure accurate interpretation. A majority opinion, just because a lot of people believe it, doesn't mean that it's accurate. I'll give you an example in a moment. And the second thing to remember, based on Daniel 12, 4, is that greater prophetic clarity in the last days is to be expected, not rejected. In the last days, Greater prophetic clarity is to be expected, not rejected. Now, let me give you an illustration of our first observation. The majority of the church today believes that either the church has replaced Israel or that Israel has forfeited their position as the chosen people of God because of their national rejection of the Messiah. That's what the majority of the church believes, and I'll say it, unashamedly here tonight, the majority of the church is wrong. God has not cast off Israel. Somebody say amen. amen. How do we know? Well, Jeremiah, for one, says in 31, 35 to 37, by the way, we're going to read a lot of scripture here tonight. Uh, you better say something better than that. We're going to read a lot of scripture here tonight. And Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37 says, thus says the Lord, 
who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of armies, or host is his name, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel, meaning the descendants of the Israelites, shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says who? Says the Lord. So let's do a little check. Was the sun out today? I saw it. It was out. It was hot today. I drove by the beach yesterday. The waves were still roaring upon the shore. The moon was out last night. So those ordinances established at creation are still in effect and still in order today. Therefore, according to the word of God, the conclusion is this. God has not cast off Israel. They are still his people today. Now, when contrasting old interpretations and new ones, I like to think of prophecy through this particular picture. Consider that one is looking at a painting and there's another looking at the same painting. One person is standing 100 feet away and another piece, person is standing two feet away. Who's going to have better clarity of the details? Obviously, the person standing two feet away. Or like the zoom lens on a camera. Someone who is zooming in, making the object appear closer, is going to have better clarity of the details of what they're taking a picture of. And therefore, those in closer proximity to the events written by Daniel and other prophets are going to be able to see them more clearly than previous generations. Now, that would include the fourth vision of Daniel, which addresses the same exact time period that we see here in Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. That makes a point in and of itself. The very fact that we can see the better clarity of the details of Ezekiel's prophecy tells us that the complete fulfillment of it must be relatively near. So the big questions about Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 are, who are the players involved? When is this going to happen? And our question tonight is, what can we know for sure? And if these events are near, how near is near? Now, we're going to include some other details concerning the war of Ezekiel, but I want to spend our time tonight dealing with things that need no interpretation. So here's our approach tonight. We're going to make two obvious observations, and then we're going to conclude with one astounding conclusion. Who wants to know what the astounding conclusion is? Well, stick around. It'll be in the second hour of our message. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll have three little visits to each of those particular chapters. And God, we are so thankful again to have your word given to us over 1,500 years by 40 authors living on various continents just to show us a consistency of message in order for us to have confidence in your word. We thank you for these very well-known passages and Lord, we do ask because of our proximity to them that we would have clarity concerning the multiple inter interpretations we'll address tonight. So give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the 412 warriors said, Amen. Amen. Now, for those who may be unfamiliar with what's happening in Ezekiel 37, 
the prophet has been told a couple of things. One, he was shown a valley of bones. They were examined and they were found to be very dry. Now, nothing in Scripture is without meaning. And the fact that these bones being examined and found to be very dry tells us that a period of time had elapsed since those bones were placed there, indicating that Israel would be a dry land as the Israelites were scattered among the nations for an extended period of time. Can we look back historically and see that's true? They were scattered amongst the nations for almost two millennia. Then the Lord asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? To which Ezekiel very wisely replied, you know, Lord. And then the Lord said to him, hear the word of the Lord. And here's what he heard from Ezekiel 37, 5 to 14. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, suddenly a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, I looked and the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered over them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are what? The whole house of Israel, the northern and southern kingdom. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off, cut off from being a nation implied. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Palestine. Is that what your Bible says? Uh, you won't find that word anywhere in your Bible because it is not Palestine, it is Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, you shall be brought up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Now, we need to note, first of all, there is an incremental pro uh, progression that is presented to us here. First, there's the rattling. Then there's the bones coming together. Then the sinews are put on the bones and the flesh. And then finally, after the skin, the breath is added. Now that tells us that there will be a series of events that lead up to Israel being born as a nation in a single day. Now we do know that the Jews began returning to Israel, making Aliyah or a return to the land of Israel back in 1892. And some 50 years later, they became a nation born in a day. And many things happened during that time frame. The Balfour Declaration was written. The uh, breakup of the Ottoman Empire and the dividing up 
of the Middle East, the San Remo Resolution of 1929. We know that Hitler and the Nazi regime was during that same time period when 6 million Jews uh, were executed simply because of their ethnicity. The dry bones, however, began to gather. Sinew, flesh, skin began to come together, and finally breath was breathed to a long-dead nation, and on May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation once again. Now, in Ezekiel 37, 21 to 23, the narrative continues where the Lord says to the prophet, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the, what's the next word? Mountains of Israel, and, the one, and one king shall be over them all. They shall no longer be two nations or a divided kingdom, nor shall they ever be divided into two kings of, kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with their transgressions or any of them, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now listen to what Amos says, writing of the same time period in 9, 14 and 15. I will bring back the captives, my people, Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up. That can also be translated as uprooted from the land I have given them. Says who? The Lord your God. Now, I want to talk about the participants of this battle in a few moments, but here's the first thing that is an obvious observation in the midst of all the things said about the nation of Israel. Listen, here's the first thing I want you to consider when studying these three chapters. The rebirth of the nation of Israel initiated an unstoppable sequence of prophetic events. The rebirth of the nation of Israel initiated an unstoppable sequence of prophetic events. People can interpret things all kinds of ways, but that's a fact that cannot be denied. There was a series of things that led to the day that Israel was born as a nation once again, as was prophesied. And this is why it is important for you and I to understand, first of all, Ezekiel chapter 37 and the prophecies contained therein, because now we can look back and see that all these things have come to pass. Now, here's a heavy. Are you ready? This is deep. This is lofty. It's going to blow your mind. You ready for this? Here it comes. Chapter 38 and 39 come after chapter 37. <laughs> Write it down. I know that's up there. But listen, that's important because we can look at 37 as the initiation of a sequence of prophetic events and see that it has been fulfilled and therefore expect 38 and 39 to come into view as they are today. We're told that Israel will never be pulled up from the land. And that land includes the mountains of Israel, which would include the Golan Heights. They will never go back to the pre-1967 
borders. These are their mountains. East Jerusalem, home to the most important mountain in the world, Mount Zion. They will never give up, at least until the tribulation. There'll be a portion that is divided during the tribulation according to Zechariah 12. But they will never give up Mount Zion. Now, chapters 38 and 39, therefore, are coming into view more clearly. But let me give you a little further evidence about chapter 37. Now, consider this. We're told that the dry bones will come together. We're told that the land will once again flourish with Israelites. On May 14, 1948, there were 650,000 Jews living in the geographic region we call Israel. There are over 6 million Jews living there now. And Israel in the past year has become home to the most Jews of any country in the world, finally surpassing even the United States. There's 2 million Jews living in New York by itself, and many obviously down in Florida. But the geographic region now home to the most Jews on the planet is the nation of Israel. Now, let me add this. Ezekiel 36.30 says, And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of what? Famine among the nations. So the Lord said he's going to multiply their fruit and he's going to increase the crops of their field. And today, Israel is one of the world's leading citrus producers and exporters. Israel today produces oranges, grapefruits, tangerines, the pomelet, which is a hybrid of a grapefruit and a pomelo. And this was developed in Israel. More than 40 types of fruit today in what was once a dry and barren land is grown in Israel. And in addition to citrus, they also grow avocados. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> Bananas, apples, cherries, plums, nectarines, grapes, dates, strawberries, prickly pear, persimmon, and loquat. Yum! What's a loquat? Uh, it's called a rush orange also. And pomegranates. Now listen, Israel is the world's leading producer. This tiny country, no bigger than San Bernardino County or the state of Rhode Island, is the world's leading producer of loquat only after the nation of Japan. Now, Isaiah tells us in 35.1, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Did you know that Israel today is the 10th largest exporter of cut flowers in the world? Of course you knew that. You guys were talking about that earlier, right? They bring in over $200 million a year to their economy by exporting flowers, and the second largest exported flower from Israel is the rose. The Lord said, the wilderness and wasteland shall be glad for them, and they, it will blossom as the rose. Now, the point is this. The geography of Israel is not naturally conducive to agriculture. More than half of the country is desert. The climate and lack of water resources do not favor farming. Only 20% of the land of Israel is naturally arable, meaning suitable for plowing and farming. Now, how many have been to Israel? Are there rocks there? Just kind of like everywhere, right? There's rocks everywhere. It's not 
a farmland type of country. Yet, we see them growing and becoming more and more self-sufficient. They are nearly 100% self-sufficient in feeding their own people. And they are a leading exporter of fruit and flowers in a world of much larger countries and competitors. Now, what that tells us is this. Something supernatural is happening in Israel. And the series of events that were initiated at the rebirth of the nation are in full swing, and they are continuing to be fulfilled. The dry bones are alive. I'll wait here. The dry bones are alive. Now, that means 38 and 39 are on the radar. So let's look at a section of 38 and draw our second observation. 38, 1 to 6 says, Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Now, while the dry bones vision interprets itself, telling us that it's about Israel multiple times, chapter 38 is where the interpretations begin to spread out as far as who is represented by these ancient names. Now, all of the names mentioned here, but two are found in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, where we find the descendants of Noah listed. You will not find Gog and you will not find Rosh mentioned in that historical record. Now, remember what we mentioned at the outset. New interpretations are to be expected and not rejected. I want to offer you something tonight that's a bit outside of the majority opinion, but it's an interesting possibility. Now, let me first show you what many see as the modern nations represented by these ancient names, even though there's some debate among this majority uh, believed list. Now, first of all, we have Rosh, often thought of as representing Russia. Magog represents the southern steppes of Russia, possibly including Pakistan and Afghanistan. Meshek occupies the geographic region of Turkey. Tubal, Turkey. Persia is who? Iran. Iran. Ethiopia, or Kush, if you're reading the King Jimmy represents the Sudan, Libya, or again in the King Jimmy, put or foot is Libya. Gomer represents Turkey, and Beth, or the house of Tagarma, represents also Turkey. Now, one thing to take note of, Ethiopia in antiquity simply meant a nation south of Egypt. It didn't mean the modern nation of Ethiopia. There's no correlation to the word Ethiopia in the modern country in that sense. Now, secondly, many people have believed that Magog represents Israel, and this was popularized by the Schofield Bible when it was published in 1906 and recorded that very interpretation. Now, some of the reasons were as simple as Magog and Moscow sound a lot alike, and they both have two syllables and start with M. 
Now, that's not how we establish our interpretations. Hello? Amen? Now, so what is Magog? Magog, by definition, is the mountainous region between Cappadocia and Media. And it's the hab- habitation of the descendants of Magog, the son of Japheth, the grandson of Noah. Now, Cappadocia and Media were in Asia Minor and Asia, respectively. And Cappadocia is in, within the modern boundaries of Turkey today and Media in the area known as Azerbaijan, uh, or northern, western uh, Iran and northeastern Iraq. So again, in the Middle East. Now, here's where we're going to introduce something interesting, and I'm about to give you a headache, so please forgive me. The region of Azerbaijan was part of Persia until early in the 19th century when it became a part of the Soviet Union in 1922 and finally an independent state in 1996. So therefore, if Magog represents part of Asia Minor and Persia, and Rosh then must represent Russia. Or is there another possibility? Now, it's almost universally agreed that Gog is actually a name. It's a title or a name. And there are those who see Rosh as well as a personal name or a proper name. Now, there are also those who argue that Rosh is not a proper name at all, but rather Rosh is a noun, meaning head or chief, much like Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year. Now, here's what's interesting. In Amos chapter 7, you guys still here? Amos chapter 7, verse 1 says, Thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. Say, wow. I can see by the tone of your look, you're wondering what on earth does that have to do with anything? Well, I'm glad you asked. Amos 7.1 reads this from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Listen to this. Thus the Lord God has showed me, and behold, a swarm of locusts coming from the east, and behold, one caterpillar implied is with them, King who? King Gog. Now, one caterpillar has also been translated as young, devastating locust was Gog the king. Now, here's something interesting. Proverbs 30, 27 says, The locusts have no king, yet they advance in ranks. Now then in Revelation 9, 7, 11, we're told, the shape of the what? The shape of the locust. Is it up there? The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running in the battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months, and they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Now, whether you're reading from the Greek or the Hebrew, Apollyon and Abaddon means the destroyer. Who comes to steal, kill, and destroy? Satan, obviously. Now, the insect locusts fly in ranks, but they have no king. The locusts 
like horses of Revelation, have a king who is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew or Greek means destroyer. Now, listen to this. In Daniel chapter 10, 12 to 13, we're told, Then he said to me, an angel speaking to Daniel, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now, remember what Rosh means as a noun? Rosh Hashanah, Rosh means what? Head. The word prince here means head person. Telling us that there are fallen angels who have assignments over different countries around the world that seek to hinder or hamper the people of God. Daniel prayed his prayer. The answer to it was hindered even though it was sent out at the day and time that he prayed it. These kings of Persia hindered the answer. Michael, one of the chief princes, had to come to assist, and therefore the answer was received. So here's what I find curious about solving the debate of Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. If we were to read this directly from the Greek text, and if we were to make the assumption or interpretation that Rosh is not a proper name, but that Rosh is a noun, Ezekiel 38.1 would say this, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, ruler head, of Meshach and Tubal. Did you catch that? Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, ruler head of Meshach and Tubal. Now, let's add this, and then we'll address what we know for sure. In Revelation 20, verse 7, we're told after the millennium, after the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now again, some say, well, Gog and Magog is simply a figure of speech for uh, anyone who is opposed to the will and purposes of God, much like people would use Armageddon to describe something catastrophic. Now, I believe it is possible that Gog is actually a fallen angel that is assigned to the region of Asia Minor, Minor and Persia. And therefore, he could be present at the end of the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Now, he would therefore lead the earth dwellers, represented by Magog, against the Lord and suffer another crushing defeat. So, if neither Rosh or Magog represent Russia, and if Russia is not a part of the war of Ezekiel, but Turkey plays the primary role, what we can conclude is this. All nations involved in the invasion of Israel are Muslim. And all these nations are against Israel today. Now, is Rosh Russia? Maybe. Is Magog Russia? No. Is Gog ruler head of Meshach and Tubal, meaning a fallen angel? Maybe, maybe not. And chapter 39 does say that Gog is buried 
and all his multitude, which could simply be a figure of speech, meaning the human forces fighting on behalf of Gog are utterly defeated and killed, which we know is true. So with all that said, let's draw our second obvious observation. Are you ready? Are all of you ready? Now listen, the participants in the war of Ezekiel are creating alliances and moving into position. This we know is happening for sure. The participants in the war of Ezekiel are creating alliances and moving into position. Now, no matter what one's interpretation of the actual participants may be, the region of the world that they represented, uh, represent rather, are unified by one thing, and that is the destruction of Israel. Now, there are some exceptions we're going to talk about in a moment, but remember, just as the dry bones of Israel became a nation in a relatively short period of time after a long diaspora, we have seen many of the nations identified in Ezekiel now joining together diplomatically, they're joined together militarily, and they're beginning to gather on the northern border of Israel, and those south of Israel and North Africa share the same vision of those gathered on the north for the future of Israel, and that is their ultimate destruction and to drive them into the sea. Now, one last thing we'll add, and then we'll come to our astounding conclusion. Ezekiel 38.13 says, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, the invading forces of Gog and Magog, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? So obviously there's an economic motivation to the invasion of Israel. Now, we could spend our whole time tonight talking about who scholars think Tarshish represents and where it's located. Now, what we do know is from Genesis 10:4 in the Table of Nations, the sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodamim. Now, Tarshish is identified by Strong's Concordance as one, one of the wise men close to King Ahasuerus of Persia, two, a city of the Phoenicians in a distant part of the Mediterranean, which the prophet Jonah was trying to flee, uh, thirdly, a site unknown, but perhaps in Cyprus or Spain. Fourth, a city somewhere near and accessible to the Red Sea, to which ships constructed at Azion Geber on the uh, Atlantic, Go Atlantic Gulf on the Red Sea were to sail. So those are the offerings of who Tarshish is, and there's many others. So who and where is Tarshish? I don't know either. Now, who and where is Sheba and Dedan? That we can answer. Some of the seven Arab Gulf states are occupying the region that was once occupied by Sheba and Dedan. Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, and the UAE currently occupy this region. Now, why is that important? Because these nations have recently, though at times covertly, began to interact with Israel, largely because of a shared animosity for Iran. Now, the point is that just as the invading forces, so too the protesting countries, are now moving toward a more moderate stance concerning Israel, and they are in alliance together. So therefore, the invading forces of the war of Ezekiel are allied and positioning themselves for the invasion, and the protesting nations have become more Israel-friendly, though they have been enemies in the past. 
Now, there's so many more things we could say, but for the sake of time, let's wrap it up. We made two obvious observations, and now the astounding conclusion. Are you ready? Verse 39, 1 to 8. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you up, bringing you up from the far north. Remember, everything is up when you're talking about Mount Zion and Jerusalem. And bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, and the peoples who are with you, I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be what? Devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God, and I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people, Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One, and where? Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Now, the chapter goes on to tell us that they will burn the weapons of the invading armies for seven years, and for seven months they will be burying the dead while the birds and the beasts feast on the carnage and the aftermath. Then after that, we read this. Now, here's another lengthy read, but hang on. Ezekiel 38, 21 to 29, the Lord says, I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from when? That day forward. Is it up there? That day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hands of their enemies and they all fell by the sword according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions. I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name after they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid. When I brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Now, after the Lord destroys the invaders of Israel, from that day forward, Israel will know that he is the Lord their God. Now let's add this, Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the house of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, 
we know for sure that what Zechariah records happens during the tribulation. Zechariah 12 to 14 covered that time period in great detail. Now, we see the same language as the after effect of the war of Ezekiel. Now, with this combined with the cataclysmic wrath of God that is displayed against the invading armies, which is something that is specific to the 70th week of Daniel and in part to the great and terrible day of the Lord, this in my mind places the war of Ezekiel inside the tribulation period, I believe early on. It is very likely what aids the Antichrist rise to power. Now, some say the aftermath of taking seven months to bury the dead by men regularly employed to do so implies a nuclear event. Now, actually, we're told what happens, and we're told what happens specifically, and I will say this. God doesn't need man, puny man's help. Amen? He can handle Israel's enemies. As a matter of fact, he does quite handily. If we back up into 38 for a moment, and look at 18 to 23, we're told it will come to pass at the same time when Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the fields, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against who? God throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. Then God says, I will rain down on him, him being God, on his troops, and on the many peoples who were with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus, I will magnify who? Myself and sanctify who? Myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Do you see anything about a nuclear exchange there? I didn't see anything either. Now, the fact is, what we do see is the Lord says over and over, I will, I will, I will. And guess what? He will. Now, think about this. If this happens early in the tribulation, if five-sixths of the invading armies are destroyed by these cataclysmic wrath of God types of events, and it takes seven months to bury the dead, and seven years they use the weapons for fuel and burn them, do you think there at that time would be any international arguments about the Jews rebuilding a temple on the Temple Mount? I don't think anybody's going to protest, do you? Now, here we go. We finally made it after a myriad of verses. Did you guys survive? Here comes an astounding conclusion. Now listen, from all these things that we read, what we know for sure is this. If the war of Ezekiel is on the horizon, Jesus must be coming soon. Amen? If the war of Ezekiel is on the horizon, Jesus must be coming soon. 
Listen, if the rebirth of the nation of Israel initiated a sequence of unstoppable prophetic events, and if the participants of the Ezekiel War are aligning and positioning themselves, and if the protestants of the Ezekiel War are aligning and positioning themselves, and if they are gathering in the geographic regions, the Bible says they would gather in, and the evidence seems to indicate that the war happens inside the tribulation period as evidenced by the cataclysmic wrath of God poured out on these invading forces, then that can only mean Jesus is coming soon. Because 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 6.17 says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The implied answer is obviously no one. Now listen tonight. Uh, all the twists and turns, all the things we threw out, all the possible interpretations, those that are more probable than others, whoever Rosh is, whoever Gog is, no matter where Tarshish is, or who they represent, the fact is that the time of God's wrath that comes on the whole world is a time the church does not have an appointment with. So, let me say it again. Jesus must be coming soon. If we're seeing all these things, we should be crying out, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. And Father, we are thankful once again for all that we examined tonight, the many verses that we read, and how time and time again you stated the reason for the events we see in Ezekiel 37 to 39, that people would know you are the Lord. And Father, we recognize that there's coming a day where every tongue is going to confess just that fact, that Jesus is Lord. Every knee someday is going to bow as they make that confession. And Lord, we say to you, we choose to bow now. We choose to make that confession now, to recognize who you are now, and therefore live in expectancy of your return. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of John 14, that you have gone to prepare a place for us. And if you've gone, you'll come again to receive us unto yourself, that where you are, we may be also. So Lord, I pray that the end result of our time tonight has cleared our minds to recognize that your coming is not only imminent, but it is quite possibly near, perhaps even today. And Lord, may that cause all of us to have a sense of urgency to tell people about the only one who can save them. And Lord, as the world is pressuring us to silence our message, May we grow in boldness as your spirit empowers us as we proclaim Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. Thank you for our text. Thank you for our time. Thank you that you're coming again. Thank you that it could be soon. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now listen, we read a lot of verses tonight. Sorry, Craig. But we did so for a reason. Because Isaiah 55, 11 says, The word of God does not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. What was the purpose of our time together tonight? 
over and 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 over. Did I say over and over? Over and over we heard so that the people will know that he is the Lord. All these incredible things that have been fulfilled that we've had the privilege to look at and understand. Things in the past, things that are in the near future remind us once again that our God is sovereign. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. And no one can stop him. Somebody say, Amen. Amen.